Section 8 of the Afghan Wars, 1839-42 and 1878-80, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Calkins. The Afghan Wars, 1839-42 and 1878-80, Part 2 by Archibald Forbes. Chapter 7. The Amir Abdurrahman. The occupation of Afghanistan by the British troops had been prolonged far beyond the period originally intended by the authorities. But the strain of that occupation was great, and although it had to be maintained until there should be found a ruler strong enough to hold his own after the evacuation, the decision was definitely arrived at to withdraw from the country before the setting in of another winter. Mr. Lapel Griffin, a distinguished member of the political department of the Indian Civil Service, reached Kabul on 20th March, his mission being to further the selection and acceptance of a capable ruler to be left in possession. The task was no easy one. There was little promise in any of the Baraksai pretenders who were in Afghanistan, and in the address which Mr. Griffin addressed in Durbar to a number of sirdars and chiefs of the middle of April, he preserved a tone at once haughty and enigmatical. One thing he definitely announced, the viceroy's decision that Yakub Khan was not to return to Afghanistan. The state was to be dismembered. As to the future of Herat, the speaker made no allusion but the province of Kandahar was to be separated from Kabul and placed under an independent Baraksai prince. No decision could for the present be given in regard to the choice of an Amir to rule over Kabul. The government desired to nominate Amir strong enough to govern his people and steadfast in friendship to the British. If those qualifications could be secured, the government was willing and anxious to recognize the wish of the Afghan people and nominate an Amir of their choice. But in effect, the choice, so far as the English were concerned, had been already virtually made. On the 14th of March, Lord Lytton had telegraphed to the Secretary of State advocating the early public recognition of Abdurrahman as legitimate heir of Dost Mahomed and the dispatch of a deputation of Sirdars with British concurrence to offer him the throne as sole means of saving the country from anarchy and the minister had promptly replied authorizing the nomination of Abdurrahman should he be found acceptable to the country and would be contented with northern Afghanistan. Abdurrahman had known strange vicissitudes. He was the eldest grandson of the old Dost. His father was Afzul Khan, the elder brother of Shir Ali. After the death of the Dost, he had been an exile in Bukhara, but he returned to Balkh, of which province his father had been governor until removed by Shir Ali, made good his footing there, and having done so, advanced on Kabul, taking advantage of Shir Ali's absence at Kandahar. The capital opened its gates to him in March 1866. He fought a successful battle with Shir Ali at Sheikhabad, occupied Ghuzni, and proclaimed his father Amir. Those were triumphs, but soon the wheel came round full circle. Afzul had but a short life as Amir, and Abdurrahman had to retire to Afghan Turkestan. Yakub, then full of vigor and enterprise, defeated him at Bamiyan and restored his father Shir Ali to the throne in the winter of 1868. 
Abdurrahman then once more found himself in exile. In 1870, after much wandering, he reached Tashkent, where General Kaufman gave him permission to reside and obtained for him from the Tsar a pension of 25,000 rubles per annum. Petrovsky, a Russian writer who professed to be intimate with him during his period of exile, wrote of him that to get square some day with the English and Shir Ali was Abdurrahman's most cherished thought, his dominant, never-failing passion. His hatred over Shir Ali, his family, and supporters was intelligible and natural enough, but why he should have obtained a bitter grudge against the English is not very apparent and there has been no overt manifestation of its existence since he became Amir. To Mr. Eugene Schuyler, who had an interview with him at Tashkent, he expressed his conviction that with 50,000 pounds wherewith to raise and equip an army, he could attain his legitimate position as Amir of Afghanistan. Resolutely bent on an effort to accomplish this purpose, he was living penuriously and saving the greater part of his pension, and he hinted that he might have Russian assistance in the prosecution of his endeavor. The selection of a man of such antecedents and associations as the ruler of a buffer state in friendly relations with British India was perhaps the greatest leap in the dark on record. Abdurrahman came straight from the position of a Russian pensionary. In moving on Afghanistan, he obeyed Russian instructions. His Tashkent patrons had furnished him with a modest equipment of arms and money, the value of which he undertook to repay if successful. It is, of course, possible that those functionaries of a notoriously simple and ingenuous government started and equipped him in pure friendly good nature, although they had previously consistently deterred him. But there was not a circumstance in connection with Abdurrahman that was not suspicious. Three distinct hypotheses seem to present themselves in relation to this selection as our nominee. That Lord Lytton had extraordinary, almost indeed preternatural foresight and sagacity, that he was extremely fortunate in his leap in the dark, that he desired to bring to the naked reductio ad absurdium the buffer state policy. When Abdurrahman began his movement is uncertain. So early as the middle of January, it was reported at Sharpur that he had left Tashkent and was probably already on the Afghan side of the Oxus. In a letter of February 17, Mr. Hensman speaks of him as being in Badakhshan, where his wife's kinsmen were in power, and describes him as having a following of 2,000 or 3,000 Turkoman horsemen and possessed, according to native report, of 12 lakhs of rupees. On the 17th of March, Lord Lytton telegraphed to the Secretary of State that he was in possession of authentic intelligence that the Sirdar was in Afghan Turkestan, having lately arrived there from Badakhshan. It was regarded of urgent importance to ascertain definitely the disposition of Abdurrahman and whether he was disposed to throw in his lot with the British government and accept the position of nominee in northern Afghanistan. The agent selected by Mr. Griffin to open preliminary negotiations was a certain Mohammed Sirwar Gilzai, who had been all his life in the confidential service of the Sirdar's family. Sirwar was the bearer of a formal and colorless letter by way simply of authentication, but he also carried full and explicit verbal instructions. He was directed to inform the Sirdar that since he had entered Afghanistan and occupied places there by force of arms, it was essential for him to declare with what object he had come, 
and whether actuated by friendly or hostile feelings toward the British government, which for its part had no ill feeling toward him because of his long residence within the Russian Empire and his notoriously close relations with that power, that the British government was able to benefit him very largely in comparison with that of Russia, and that wisdom and self-interest alike suggested that he should at once open a friendly correspondence with the British officers in Kabul, that his opportunity was now come, and that the British government was disposed to treat him with every consideration and to consider most favorably any representations he might make. It had no intention of annexing the country and only desired to see a strong and friendly chief established at Kabul, and that, consequently, the present communication was made solely in Abdurrahman's own interest and not in that of the British government. He was desired to send a reply by Sirwar and later to repair to Kabul, where he should be honorably received. Sirwar returned to Kabul on 21st April, bringing a reply from Abdurrahman to Mr. Griffin's letter. The tone of the reply was friendly enough, but somewhat indefinite. In conversation with Sirwar, as reported by the latter, Abdurrahman was perfectly frank as to his relations with the Russians and his sentiment in regard to them. It had been reported that he had made his escape clandestinely from Tashkent. Had he cared to stand well with us at the expense of truth, it would have been his cue to disclaim all authority or assistance from the Russian government, to confirm the current story of his escape, and to profess his anxiety to cultivate friendly relations with the British in a spirit of opposition to the power in whose territory he had lived so long virtually as a prisoner. But neither in writing nor in conversation did he make any concealment of his friendliness toward the Russians, a feeling which he clearly regarded as nowise incompatible with friend relations with the British government. If, said he to Sirwar, the English will in sincerity befriend me, I have no wish to hide anything from them. And he went on to tell how the Russians had forbidden him for years to make any effort to interfere in Afghan affairs. This prohibition stood until information reached Tashkent of the deportation of Yakub Khan to India. Then it was that General Kaufman's representative said to him, You have always been anxious to return to your country. The English have removed Yakub Khan. The opportunity is favorable. If you wish, you are at liberty to go. The Russians, continued Abdurrahman, pressed him most strongly to set out on the enterprise which lay before him. They lent him 33,000 rupees and arms, ammunition, and supplies. He was bound to the Russians by no path or promise, but simply by feelings of gratitude. I should never like, said he, to be obliged to fight them. I have eaten their salt and was for 12 years dependent on their hospitality. Sirwar reported Abdurrahman as in fine health and possessed of great energy. He had with him a force of about 3,000 men, consisting of four infantry and two cavalry regiments, with twelve guns and some irregulars. He professed his readiness, in preference to conducting negotiations through agents, to go himself to Charakar in the Kohistan with an escort, and there discuss matters with the English officers in person. Sirwar testified that the Sirdar had with him in Turkestan no Russian or Russian agent, and this was confirmed through other sources. He had sent forward to ascertain which was the easiest pass across the Hindu Kosh, but meanwhile he was to remain in Kandus until he should hear again from Mr. Griffin. 
While the wary Sirdar waited on events beyond the Hindu Kosh, he was sending letters to the leading chiefs of the Kohistan and the Kabul province, desiring them to be ready to support his cause. That he had an influential party was made clear at the Durbar held by Mr. Griffin on April 21st, when a considerable gathering of important chiefs united in the request that Abdurrahman's claim to the Amirship should be favorably regarded by the British authorities. In pursuance of the negotiations, a mission consisting of three Afghan gentlemen, two of whom belonged to Mr. Griffin's political staff, left Kabul on May 2nd carrying to Abdurrahman a letter from Mr. Griffin intimating that it had been decided to withdraw the British army from Afghanistan in the course of a few months, and that the British authorities desired to leave the rulership in capable and friendly hands, that they were therefore willing to transfer the government to him, recognize him as the head of the state, and afford him the facilities and even support in reorganizing the government and establishing himself in the sovereignty. The mission found the attitude of Abdurrahman scarcely so satisfactory as had been reported by Sirwar, and its members were virtual prisoners, their tents surrounded by sentries, Abdurrahman's explanation of this rigor of isolation was that he could not otherwise ensure the safety of the envoys, but another construction conveyed to them was that they were kept prisoners that they might not, by mixing with the people, learn of the presence on the right bank of the Oxus of a Russian officer with whom Abdurrahman was said to be in constant communication and on whose advice he acted. Their belief was that Abdurrahman was entirely under Russian influence, that Mr. Griffin's letter after it had been read in Durbar in the camp was immediately dispatched across the Oxus by means of mounted relays, and that Russian instructions as to a reply had not been received when they left Turkestan to return to Kabul. They expressed their belief that the Sirdar would not accept from British hands Kabul shorn of Kandahar. They had urged him to repeat in the letter they were to carry back to Kabul the expression of his willingness to meet the British representative at Charikar, which had been contained in his letter sent by Sirwar, but he demurred to committing himself even to this slight extent. The letter which he sent by way of reply to the weighty communication Mr. Griffin had addressed to him on the part of the government of India, that official characterized as frivolous and empty, and only saved by its special courtesy of tone from being an impertinence. An Afghan who had sat at Kaufman's feet, Abdurrahman was not wholly a guileless man, and the truth probably was that he mistrusted the Greeks of Simla and the gifts they tendered him with so lavish protestation that they were entirely for his own interest. There was very little finesse about the importunity of the British that he should constitute himself their bridge of extrication, so that they might get out of Afghanistan without the dangers and discredit of leaving chaos behind them. But Abdurrahman had come to know himself strong enough to reduce to order that legacy of chaos if it should be left, and in view of his future relations with his fellow Afghans, he was not solicitous to be beholden to the foreigners to any embarrassing extent. He knew, too, the wisdom of masterly inactivity in delicate conditions. And again, he had no confidence in our pledges. On the 4th of August, the day after the meeting between him and Mr. Griffin at Zima, the latter wrote, They, Abdurrahman and his advisers, feared greatly our intention was to rid ourselves of a formidable opponent, and dreaded that if he had come straight into Kabul he would have been arrested and deported to India. A liberal government was now in office in England, 
and was urgent for the speedy evacuation of Afghanistan. Lord Lytton had resigned and had been succeeded as Viceroy by the Marquis of Ripon. Lieutenant General Sir Donald Stewart was in chief command at Kabul. A great number of letters from Abdurrahman to chiefs and influential persons throughout Afghanistan were being intercepted, the tone of which was considered objectionable. He was reported to be in close correspondence with Muhammad John, who had never ceased to be our bitter enemy. The fact that negotiations were in progress between the British government and Abdurrahman had become a matter of general knowledge throughout the country and was occasioning disquietude and excitement. So clear were held the evidences of what was termed Abdurrahman's bad faith, but was probably a combination of genuine mistrust, astute passivity, and shrewd playing of his own hand, that it became a serious question with the Indian government on the arrival of the new viceroy whether it was good policy to have anything more to do with him. It was resolved that before breaking off intercourse, the suggestion of Sir Donald Stewart and Mr. Griffin should be adopted that a peremptory, although still friendly, letter demanding a definite acceptance or refusal of the proffers made within four days after the receipt should be sent to Abdurrahman, with a detailed explanation of the arrangements into which we were prepared to enter with regard to him and the future of Afghanistan. A letter was forwarded from Kabul on 14th June, in which Mr. Griffin informed the Sirdar that since the British government admitted no right of interference by foreign powers in Afghanistan, it was plain that the Kabul ruler could have no political relations with any foreign power except the English, and if any foreign power should attempt to interfere in Afghanistan, and if such interference should lead to unprovoked aggression on the Kabul ruler, then the British government would be prepared to aid him, if necessary, to repel it. As regarded limits of the territory, the latter stated that the whole province of Kandahar had been placed under a separate ruler, except Sibi and Pishin, which were retained in British possession. Consequently, the British government was unable to enter into any negotiations on those points, or in respect to arrangements in regard to the northwestern frontier, which were settled by the Treaty of Gundamak. Subject to those reservations, the British government was willing that Abdurrahman should establish over Afghanistan, including Herat when he should have conquered it, as complete and extensive authority as was swayed by any previous emir. The British government would exercise no interference in the internal government of those territories, nor would it demand the acceptance of an English resident anywhere within Afghanistan, although for convenience of ordinary friendly intercourse, it might be agreed upon that a Mohammedan agent of the British government should be stationed at Kabul. Abdurrahman's reply to this communication was vague and evasive and was regarded by Sir Donald Stewart and Mr. Griffin as so unsatisfactory that they represented to the government of India, not for the first time, their conviction of the danger of trusting Abdurrahman, the imprudence of delaying immediate action, and the necessity of breaking off with him and adopting other means of establishing a government in Kabul before the impending evacuation. Lord Ripon, however, considered that, as matters stood, an arrangement with Abdurrahman offered the most advisable solution, while he doubted whether it would not be found very difficult to enter into any alternative arrangement. His Excellency's decision was justified by the event. Meanwhile, indeed, Abdurrahman had started on June 28th for the Kohistan. 
He crossed the Hindu Kosh and arrived on July 20th at Sherikar, where he was welcomed by a deputation of leading chiefs, while the old Mushkialum, who for some time, thanks to Mr. Griffin's influence, had been working in the interests of peace, intimated on behalf of a number of chiefs assembled in Maidan that they were ready to accept as Amir the nominee of the British government. So propitious seemed the situation that it was considered the time had come for formally acknowledging Abdurrahman as the new Amir, and also for fixing approximately the date of the evacuation of Kabul by the British troops. The ceremony of recognition was enacted in a great Durbar tent within the Sherpur cantonment on the afternoon of July 22nd. The absence of Abdurrahman and the notorious cause of that absence detracted from the intrinsic dignity of the occasion so far as concerned the British participation in it. Nor was the balance restored by the presence of three members of his suite whom he had delegated to represent him. A large number of Sirdars, chiefs, and Maliks were present, some of whom had fought stoutly against us in December. Sir Donald Stewart, who presided, explained to the assembled Afghans that their presence and that of the officers of the British force had been called for in order that the public recognition by the British government of the Sirdar Abdurrahman Khan as Amir of Kabul should be made known with as much honor as possible. Then Mr. Griffin addressed in Persian a short speech to the Sirdars, chiefs, and gentlemen who constituted his audience, Having announced the recognition of Abdurrahman by the Viceroy of India and the government of Her Most Gracious Majesty, the Queen Empress, he proceeded, It is to the government a source of satisfaction that the tribes and chiefs have preferred as Amir a distinguished member of the Baraksai family, who is a renowned soldier, wise, and experienced. His sentiments toward the British government are most friendly, and so long as his rule shows that he is animated by these sentiments, he cannot fail to receive the support of the British government. Mr. Griffin then intimated that the British armies would shortly withdraw from Afghanistan, and in his formal farewell there was a certain appropriate dignity and a well-earned tribute to the conduct of our soldiers during their service within the Afghan borders. We trust and firmly believe, said Mr. Griffin, that your remembrance of the English will not be unkindly. We have fought you in the field whenever you have opposed us, but your religion has in no way been interfered with, the honor of your women has been respected, and everyone has been secure in possession of his property. Whatever has been necessary for the support of the army has been liberally paid for. Since I came to Kabul, I have been in daily intercourse with you, but I have never heard an Afghan make a complaint of the conduct of any soldier, English or native, belonging to Her Majesty's army. The Durbar was closed by an earnest appeal by Sir Donald Stewart to all the Sirdars and chiefs that they should put aside their private feuds and unite to support the new Amir. On August 3rd, Abdurrahman and Mr. Griffin at length met, about 16 miles north of Kabul. His adherents were still full of excitement and suspicion, but the Amir himself was calm, cheerful, and dignified. The conference between him and Mr. Griffin lasted for three hours and was renewed on the following day. He appeared, wrote Mr. Griffin, animated by a sincere desire to be on cordial terms with the British government, and although his expectations were larger than the government was prepared to satisfy, yet he did not press them with any discourteous insistence and the result of the interview may be considered on the whole to be highly satisfactory.
The tidings of the Maiwand disaster had reached Cherpur by telegraph, and the Amir was informed that a necessity might occur for marching a force from Kabul to Kandahar. His reply was that the tribes might be hostile, but that if no long halts were made by the way, he would have no objections to such a march. In this he showed his astuteness, since the defeat of Ayub Khan by a British army would obviously save him a contest. So willing to be of service on this matter was he, that when the march was decided on, he sent influential persons of his party in advance to arrange within the local Maliks to have supplies collected for the column. The arrangements made with him were that he was to fall heir to the thirty guns of Shir Ali's manufacture, which the outmarching army was to leave in Sherpur, and was to receive nineteen and one-half lakhs of rupees, one hundred ninety thousand five hundred pounds, ten lakhs of which were given as an earnest of British friendship, and the balance was money belonging to the Afghan state, which had gone into the commissariat chest and was now restored. At the Amir's earnest and repeated request, the forts which had been built around Kabul by the British army were not destroyed as had been intended, but were handed over intact to the new Amir. It seemed that Sir Donald Stewart, who was to evacuate Shurpur on the 11th August, would leave Kabul without seeing Abdurrahman, but at the last moment Mr. Griffin succeeded in arranging an interview. It was held early in the morning of the evacuation, in a tent just outside the Sherpur cantonment, and was quite public, and lasted only for a quarter of an hour. Abdurrahman was frank and cordial. He said that his heart was full of gratitude to the British, and desired that his best thanks should be communicated to the Viceroy. At the close of the interview, he shook hands with all who cared to wish him goodbye and good luck, and sent his principal officer to accompany the general on his first day's march, which began immediately after the parting with Abdurrahman. Sir Donald Stewart's march down the passes was accomplished without incident, quite unmolested by the tribes. Small garrisons were temporarily left in the Khyber posts, and the war-worn regiments were dispersed through the stations of northwest India. End of section 8